Good morning, everybody. It's good to see everyone. I know we do have a lot of people traveling, but I'm glad that you're here. If you're visiting with us this morning, I am uh, very glad that you're here. I hope you're made to feel welcome. hope you're encouraged by uh, what you experienced this morning. And for all of our members here, good morning, family. Uh, it is halfway through 2023, if you can believe it, and I think just a good opportunity to pause and reflect on all the good things that God has done for us as a family so far this year. Uh, we've had to say goodbye to some of our family as they've moved away, but we've gained some along the way. Um, we have been blessed in so many different ways, so many prayers that have been answered, uh, so many opportunities to serve, so many opportunities to study. We've watched people put Christ on in baptism. I just want to remind you of how good our God is this morning, and if you haven't taken time to reflect on that this week, I hope you'll take a minute this morning to do exactly that. We are blessed to be worshiping together in this place with air conditioning, right, in a beautiful location, we're spoiled. We really are. And we need to take more opportunities to thank God for the things he's given us and to think about the ways that we can use those things to serve the people around us. Remember what we're called to do, to find the least among us and to show them the love of Christ. So I hope you'll be about that work this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 5 this morning, continuing through our series in the Gospel of John. We're going to take a couple weeks to get through this chapter, I'm going to try to get about halfway through it, through verse 18 uh, this morning, and so encourage you to turn over to John chapter 5 as we begin to take a look at this text together this morning. Sometime later is how it begins. Notice how unspecific John can be, some non-specific John can be at certain times, right? Sometime later, he, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Which Jewish festival? We don't know. So it's sometime later, around one of the festivals, Jesus goes back to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which is an Aramaic called Bethesda. And the translation of that is House of Mercy. And I want to point that out because I think that's relevant to what is happening in this story. And which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. It's a place where those who are in need of help that they can't find anywhere else have gathered themselves together. And the reason they've done that is because of what follows. Now I want to show you, most of you are probably reading from one of the mainstream modern English translations. You'll find a footnote referencing the verse that is actually missing from your text. It's in some of the older translations, but not the newer ones. And what's missing here, what's footnoted, is a verse that is in some old manuscripts, but not the oldest of our manuscripts. And so it's probably not original to the text. It was most likely included by a scribe who was later on trying to give some clarity to what we read about in this story. Why was it that people were here, and why will the man we're going to read about in a minute reference the stirring of the waters later on. And so this is what's included. It says, all of these people gathered here would wait for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Sounds a little odd, right? Probably because that's not what was happening, but what people thought was happening. And so this is there to give clarity to what exactly drew people to this pool of water specifically. But you can imagine the scene. 
this group of people with no hope of finding healing anywhere else as a last-ditch effort have gathered to this place because they believe something magical is happening in the waters, and if they can only get into that water, they can find the healing that they need. It's to this place that Jesus is attracted. And so we go on in the text, starting in verse 5. One who was there, one man in particular, and I want to point this out because it's important. There is a group of people, a large group of people, all there for the same reason, in need of healing, desperate need of healing. Jesus did not come to heal that entire group of people. He came to single one man out in particular. And I want to point that out because what's happening in this text is not Jesus offering a final solution to the entire problem of human suffering. That's not what he's doing in this moment. He's performing a sign and he's doing it for a purpose a specific place, a specific time, a specific person. And so that specific person, John draws to our attention here. There's a man who's been here, invalid, for 38 years. Now, we don't know if he was born that way, if he's older than 38, but either way, people in antiquity didn't live a whole lot longer than this on average, especially if they were suffering from some kind of physical condition. And so this man, for the majority of his life, has been in this situation, some kind of paralysis that he struggled with. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him. This is one of the things I find most interesting about this story. Jesus doesn't just find this man and pronounce him healed. He asks him a question. And the question he asks him, I think, is rather odd on the surface. Here's the question he asks him. Do you want to get well? Now, if I was that man, if I'm being honest, if I was that man in that situation, and the stranger came up to me and asked me that question, I'd be offended. I'd be offended by the question, of course I want to get well. Why would you even ask me that question? Obviously, I want to get well, but there's a reason that Jesus asks him this question. I don't know that I understand it entirely, but I do know this. I've spent a lot of time talking with people in my years in ministry who have become identified by their pain. And what I mean by that is this. Sometimes we as people have a tendency to become so closely associated with the things that we suffer from and with that the things that we suffer from and with become those things that make up the bulk of our identity. And they become a part of us to the point that we're afraid to let them go. Now I know in this man's situation, he's struggling from a a physical situation, and maybe this isn't always true. People, and maybe some of you out there today are, are struggling and have for a long time with something physical. You would give anything to just cast that burden off. But when it comes to emotional damage, when it comes to even the weight of sin that we struggle with, sometimes we become so closely associated with the things that we suffer from that they become the bulk of who we are. I become this perpetual person, this, this, this position of perpetual suffering, and I don't want to let go of it. I'm afraid to let go of it because then who will I be? If I'm no longer that person that suffers from this thing, who am I going to be after that? And so Jesus asks this man a question, and I think it's a relevant question for all of us. If we are struggling with things and continually struggling with them, and they become intertwined with our very identity, it's a legitimate question to ask ourselves, do we even want to get well to begin with? Is there a desire within us to have this burden cast off so that we can grow beyond it? 
And so this is the question Jesus asks this man, do you want to get well? Now, I don't know if he's offended or not by the question like I would have been, but his answer is telling because he pretty much dismisses the question entirely as if it's not a legitimate question to begin with, as if it had anything to do with him and his desire to get well. Here's his response, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into this pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So why are you even asking me this? I want to get well, but I can't do anything about it. I'm not able to get to the water on my own ahead of the people who can get there before I can. And so this man's been lying here this whole time, this house of mercy, thinking that this is the place he can go to find the healing he needs, and yet he can't get there. He can't get there on his own, and no one in his world cares about him enough to get him there. That's a situation that I would call hopeless. It's a hopeless situation. This is a situation this man finds himself in, and yet I think that's why Jesus singled this man out. He's the most hopeless among them. And yet for even the most hopeless among us, hope can be found in Christ. And this is what this man is about to learn through what he's about to experience. So Jesus says to him, no more questions, just this. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured. And he picked up his mat and he walked. Right? As he's just commanding this man to get better, and he responds by doing exactly that. Now, make no mistake about it, this is not... Jesus offering him self-help and, oh, it was just within you the whole time. You just had to think positively and you could push past your boundaries. That's not what this is about. This man truly is hopeless. Jesus is highlighting that situation. He has done for him what he could not do on his own and what no one else was able to do for him. Jesus was the only solution to this man's problem. He just didn't know it until he experienced it firsthand. So Jesus tells him, get up and walk. And take your mat with you. And that's exactly what the man does. Now, you would think the rest of the story would unfold like this. This miraculous healing has taken place. This man who suffered his whole life from this is healed in a moment and a celebration ensues, right? But that's not what happens. Now, I'm sure this man is celebrating, but what about everybody else? All they know is that this guy is now picking up his mat and walking. And so this is what happens. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. We see Jesus doing things on the Sabbath, I think, on purpose. I think he is drawing out conflict in order to make a point. And conflict ensues from this point forward in Jesus' ministry. But we've got to understand what the conflict is all about. So the day that he did this is the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders, seeing this man, say to him, It is the Sabbath the law forbids you to carry your mat. Not, hallelujah, you're walking, but... It's illegal for you to be carrying your mat. What is the conflict about? And what can we understand from all of this? So let's think a few minutes about Sabbath laws specifically. And I'm going to take you to a few places in Scripture, so I hope you got your Bibles open. Verses in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 10. So this is in the context of the Ten Commandments. How important is Sabbath law to God? Well, it's found in the Ten Commandments. And what I want you to see from what God says scattered throughout the Pentateuch is just how important Israel keeping the Sabbath was to him. 
the Jewish leaders are not wrong in emphasizing the importance of Sabbath law. That's not what this is about. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Six days you will labor and do all your work, but on the seventh, that is a Sabbath, it is a rest to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. It's a simple, straightforward law. Six days you get to work, the seventh day is Sabbath, and you do what on the Sabbath? You don't work. You rest. Now, why is that? Well, he takes them back to creation, because God created the earth in six days, and what did God himself do on the seventh day? He rested from the work that he had done. But I want you to understand this, and we don't have time to get into this a lot today. We will in a later lesson. But this conflict that Jesus has over and over again with the Jewish authorities on what he can do on the Sabbath, he's trying to get them to understand the Sabbath is a gift from God, a gift of rest. How many of you want to sign up for a perpetual seven-day work week? We like days of rest, don't we? We as Americans have become really good at days of rest because we turn days of rest into our busiest days of the year, right? We love to be busy, and we, we love all of the different things that we can engage in when we're not working. I love days off. Hope you guys do too, right? But this isn't just a day off. This isn't time to go do all that fun stuff you had planned. This is purposeful rest. And built into that rest is, A, a gift from God because you get to take a break, it's the law, but B, it's reminding them that they can depend on God. In a world where it was important to be busy because you were providing for what you needed the next day, to take a rest was a big deal because it meant that you had to rely on God to provide for you that next day if you weren't busy working on it. That's something we take for granted today because you can take a day off how many of you on your day off decide, I really don't want to cook today, right? So what do you do? You order DoorDash, and you pay way too much money for somebody to bring the food to you, right? This is not the world that they lived in. It took a lot of trust in God to fully rest on the Sabbath because you had to depend on him to sustain you. So it's a gift from God, but this is what the law said. Six days you will work, the seventh you will rest. Let's look later on in Exodus chapter 31. Observe the Sabbath, because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. How important was it that the Israelites kept the Sabbath? So important that to break the Sabbath was punishable by death. It's important that you understand this so you don't do what we so often do. We look at the conflict Jesus has with the Israelites of that time, and we instantly excuse ourselves from whatever it was that plagued their mental faculties, right? These guys are a bunch of dummies. We're smart enough that we would not have done what they did then. Understand what they're doing. They're trying their best to please God by laying out specifically what it meant to keep the Sabbath. We're going to talk about this more in just a minute. Why did they place such an emphasis on keeping of the Sabbath? Because if you didn't keep the Sabbath... It was punishable by death. They understood God wants you to keep the Sabbath holy. Whoever desecrates it is to be put to death. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is the day of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath, in case you didn't get it the first time, is to be put to death. Okay, so you are an Israelite. You understand how important it is to keep the Sabbath. 
You understand that to break the Sabbath is punishable by death. And then you're looking at the law, and the law is very general. Don't work on the Sabbath. Now, logically, what question would you be asking yourself? What is work? This is what God says. Now, I have to fill in the gaps, right? Now, do we ever do that today in the way that we approach Scripture? This is what God says, but it wasn't specific enough for me, so let me fill in the gaps. And let me impose my gap-filling measures on you, because the way I interpret law must be the way that you interpret law as well, right? All of this stems from a good place, our desire to be obedient to God, but it can take us to some strange places. Okay, but the Israelites are concerned. What does work actually look like on the Sabbath? For six days, this is Exodus 35. Notice how this is repeated over and over again. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day shall be your holy day, a day of Sabbath rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it is to be put to death. Okay, we've established that. Here's why I included this passage. Look at this. Do not light a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Ah, we've got a specific now. Don't do any work on the Sabbath. Well, what does work look like? Well, part of work is to do what? Light a fire in your house on the Sabbath. Do you understand why the Israelites might have been concerned about exactly how to interpret the law of the Sabbath and what it means to not work? Because for some people, lighting a fire in your house isn't work. But for them it was. And again, here's lost in the translation of the ease of our modern lives. How many of you have a fireplace in your house? Anybody have a gas-burning fireplace in your house? Right, so if you want to light a fire in your house, how much work is required? Boop. That's the work, right? Okay. For them, if you wanted to light a fire, what did you have to do? You had to gather wood. You had to do physical work in order to light that fire. Okay. Now, what is lighting a fire in your house all about? It's just part of the general requirement of being comfortable, right? But again, it's relying on God. I don't need to do that today because today I am at rest and God will take care of all my needs. Okay, the reason I point this out is because it sets up a story that we're going to read about here just to make all of this kind of drive the point home, how serious this was, and the questions that it might have brought about in the mind of an Israelite. So this is Numbers chapter 15. What happens here is a man is found gathering sticks on the Sabbath. Let that sink in for a minute. Of all the ways that you might break Sabbath by doing work, this is what this man is guilty of. He is gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And you might think, well, I know how that story is going to go. People are going to say, ah, that's no big deal. Just don't do it again. But they take this man and they basically arrest him. They hold him into custody because they know he broke the Sabbath. Gathering sticks, by the way, why is he doing that? So that he can light a fire in his home on the Sabbath. One of the very things that was just prohibited. But he did it. He broke the law. So they arrest him. They hold him in, in, in custody because they're not exactly sure what to do about this. God has said it's punishable by death, but was he serious about that? And so even Moses seems to be waiting for a word from God to clarify all this. And this is what we read next in Numbers chapter 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death as the Lord commanded Moses. Man gathered sticks on the Sabbath, and he was stoned to death by the people he lived with. 
Was God serious about keeping the Sabbath? Yes. So you get to first century Israelites now, and they are concerned about keeping the Sabbath. What does it look like to not do work on the Sabbath? Because if gathering sticks is punishable by death, what else can't we do because it might be work? And so what these Israelites did is they started to teach on this. And the rabbis during that time would say, okay, here are some further guidelines regarding what work actually looks like on the Sabbath. And these rabbinical teachings were gathered up, they were written down, and we call it the Mishnah. And what the Mishnah has to say about the Sabbath is very interesting. They came up with 39 forbidden laws of Shabbat, or Sabbath, divided into four general categories. These are the things you cannot do on the Sabbath, the four categories of work prohibited. Now again, these are not spelled out in Scripture, but in their desire to do what Scripture says, they spelled these things out to help clarify what work looked like on the Sabbath. So you cannot make bread, you cannot make clothing, you cannot make scrolls, and you cannot make shelter. These are the four categories of prohibited work on the Sabbath. Now it's that fourth one, making shelter, that I want to draw to your attention because it's the most relevant for what's happening in this chapter. This is what it says about making shelter. These are the things prohibited. Building, pulling down, like you know, tearing down a structure, extinguishing, kindling, striking with a hammer, and carrying out from one domain to another. You can't take your personal possessions and carry them from one domain to another. So this man, going back to this man now, who Jesus said, get up and walk and take out your bed, right? What did they find him doing? He's taking a personal possession, his bed, and he's carrying it from one place to another. So he is guilty of breaking law. Well, kind of. He's guilty of breaking what? Their interpretation of the law. It's not spelled out in Scripture, but their oral tradition that had been written down spelling out what law-breaking looked like, he was guilty of that. He had broken their traditional law. And so they approach him on this. You can't do that. Again, it's all coming from a good place. We don't want to have to stone you to death. So please don't break the Sabbath law. Why are you doing this? But here's this guy's response, and I think it's an awesome one. You can imagine this man, like the last thing on his mind is that he might get caught carrying his mat from one place to another, right? He's walking for the first time in 38 years. Do you think he's concerned about carrying his mat? And he's not carrying his mat as an accident, by the way. Why is he carrying his mat? Because Jesus told him to, right? So put this together in this guy's mind. The man who just spoke healing over him told him to get up and carry his mat. If you're that guy, are you going to get up and carry your mat? Yes, because the man who had enough authority to speak healing over you, told you to do it, you're going to do it. He replies to them at their question, why are you doing this? The man who made me well told me to do it. That's his response. And I think it's a perfectly good response. Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this guy who told you to pick it up? And walk. Now we need to find the real culprit here. Who is this man teaching other people to break Shabbat law? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd and was there. Later, Jesus finds this man in the temple. 
And this is what he says to him. See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Wellness isn't just about being physically well, is it? Can you remember the time in your life? Maybe you're there right now, by the way. If you are, enjoy it while it lasts. Can you remember that time in your life where you felt physically the strongest? Oh, you're there right now? Okay, good. (laughs) I look back on those days uh, with great fondness, and I wish I could bring them back, right? I can remember before I had heart issues when we first moved out here. As a cyclist, I was in love because you know what it doesn't do in Southern California over the winter? It doesn't snow. (laughs) So you get to ride your bike all year long. And there were times when I would ride from Glendora up to Mount Baldy and come back and do it again because it wasn't enough for me, right? I mean, that's what my body used to be capable of, right? Keyword, used to be capable of, right? Now I can uh, I, I eat a double-double and I'm struggling for the rest of the day because that's now what my body is, is capable of. But just to say, even when you are at the peak of physical wellness, it's a fleeting thing, isn't it? It's a fleeting thing. We're a member of, uh, members of a gym in Yorba Linda, and you go there, and there's some people that look like they've been chiseled out of granite, right? They are at the peak of physical shape. Now, I don't know what their spiritual life is like, but if that's all they're chasing after, what's going to happen to that? It's going to disappear one day. No matter how hard they work at it, it's going to go away someday. And they're going to long, when that disappears, they're going to long for something that lasts And that something that lasts is not found just in physical wellness. Now, that's not to diminish the needs of men like this, people like this, whose physical conditions cause them pain every day of their life. Jesus sees people like that, and he cared about this man's physical condition. That's why he did what he did. This is compassion over all those things that plague us as humans in this broken world. But I'm just saying, wellness isn't just about our physical condition, isn't it? You've been made well... But now go and sin no more. There is something you need to address in your spiritual life. Because it's so much more foundational to what real wellness is all about. The man went away, and what does he do? He goes back and he tells the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now I don't know if he's tattletaling or if he was just excited or he's just doing what he was told. But either way, now the, now the Jewish leaders who are concerned about breaking Shabbat law have a name and a face. Now they know who it is that told this guy to pick up his bed and walk. And notice, it's not who is the man who healed you, it's who is the man who told you to pick up your bed and walk. What was their focus really on? So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. It's because they view him as an outlaw. He is breaking Sabbath law. And so they begin to persecute him. And this is found in all of the Gospels. This conflict, ongoing conflict Jesus has with the Jewish authorities over what he is doing on the Sabbath. And I think that's a key to all of this. The conflict between Jesus and the Jewish authorities over Sabbath law wasn't about general application of Sabbath law. It wasn't about what can everybody out there do and not do on the Sabbath. He wasn't butting heads with them over that. The conflict was over what he was doing on the Sabbath. The Son of Man, the Son of God, what He was doing on the Sabbath, they had a problem with. And that's what this conflict is all about. 
So let's go back to this idea of Sabbath law for just a minute and reflect on this. We have a tendency, and by we, I mean humans in general. We have a tendency to think that the path to righteousness is through legislation. In other words, more laws equals more righteousness. That's what the path that these Jewish authorities had taken. The law is not specific enough, and so we need to make it more specific. If we can add 39 laws on top of the laws that exist in Scripture, then we will help people become more righteous because we've become more specific in our legislation. You following me? Okay, we, have, we all have a tendency to do this. In their attempt to create a legal framework through which righteousness could flourish. And I believe this is what they're trying to do. Let's just add more legislation to make it more obvious, to make it clearer so that people can stop sinning. We'll just make better laws and then people will be better people. But in their attempt to create a legal framework through which righteousness could flourish, they ended up making it, please listen to me, they ended up making it illegal for God to be at work. Jesus is now an outlaw because he's doing the work of the Father on the Sabbath, and that broke their law. How can we make it so that God can't be at work because he might somehow violate his own law? Something's gone wrong, hasn't it? And I would suggest to you that we've got to stop reading stories like this and convincing ourselves that we are nothing like those Jewish authorities because we are very much like those Jewish authorities. This is where we go. Again, I think it's from a good place, but this is where we end up. Thanks be to God that he created us who could be brilliant enough to just add a few more laws so that people can finally be holy. But that's not how it works, is it? Law does not produce righteousness. Please, please don't misunderstand me. This is not an anti-law rant. I believe like Paul did that the law was and is good. But law itself does not produce righteousness. It only helps to define it. Through the law, we see what righteousness looks like. We also see what unrighteousness looks like. And so what law really does is it produces in us who desire to be righteous it produces within us an awareness, an acute awareness of our own unrighteousness. Through the law, I get to see just how unrighteous I am. I get to see just how broken I am. Paul talks about all this in Romans chapter 7 and a little bit into chapter 8. We're going to look at just one passage here, but I encourage you, I don't have time today, spend some time in Romans chapter 7 this week and look at Paul walking through the struggle people have with the law. But this is what he says. So turn over to Romans chapter 7. Let me just show you one passage here. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 21. So I find this law at work, although I want to do good. And tell me if you can't relate to this. I want to do good, but evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Can anybody say amen to that? In our inner beings, we delight in God's law. My genuine desire every day of my life is to be obedient to the legislation God has placed in front of me. I want to be righteous as he has called me to be righteous. That's what's 
going on inside of me. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. So what is the answer? If law can't actually produce righteousness, all it does is make us aware of the fact that we can't do it on our own, then what is the answer to all of this? Well, look at what he says next. Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, the law cannot bring about righteousness. What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, we're the weak link. God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin Offering And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled and fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what happened? God sent Christ to be the propitiation, the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that he could do what the law couldn't. The law makes us aware of our sin. Jesus comes to destroy that sin and set us free from it. So please, when you read stories like this, don't immediately go to that place where these Israelites were just the worst kind of people and were nothing like them. You know what they were doing? They were trying to please God. They just didn't yet fully understand how righteousness was brought about. It wasn't in adding law on top of law. It could only come through Christ. What the law was powerless to do, God did through his son, Jesus. But they're still stuck in that place where law is the answer. And so there's conflict. So this is Jesus' response. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. You can't outlaw the work of God, and I'm here to do the work of my Father. So it doesn't matter to me whether you find me guilty of breaking the law or not. I'm here to do the will of my Father. There's no way you can find God guilty of breaking his own law. It doesn't work that way. There's another passage I'd remind you of just quickly. In Matthew chapter 12, there's a parallel here where, again, Jesus finds himself in conflict with the Jewish authorities. It's a great passage Another one I would encourage you to spend some time in this week. Lots of good stuff to say about the Sabbath there. But I just want to highlight one thing he says. He says, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For, it's one of the most powerful statements Jesus makes in the Gospels, I think. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Again, this isn't a question about what everyone can do on the Sabbath. This isn't about general application of general Sabbath law. This is a question of what Jesus could do on the Sabbath. And the Son of Man can do whatever He wants on the Sabbath because He's the Lord of the Sabbath. God gets to be at work on the Sabbath in whatever way God wants to be at work on the Sabbath. And make no mistake, Jesus isn't in the field picking up sticks, is He? This isn't menial labor. 
He's not busy doing things on his own to take care of himself that day. What is he doing? He is making a man whole. He is showing the love of God at work in a broken world. He is giving a glimpse into new creation. He is pulling back the veil so people can see what life on the other side of the cross can actually look like. He is at work. He is doing the work of his Father. And so his response to them, again, is my father's at work to this very day, and I too am working. It's a beautiful point if you have ears to hear. But for these men who didn't yet have ears to hear, those are fighting words. And so for this reason, they tried all the more, not just to persecute him, but to what? To kill him. They've determined he is now public enemy number one, and the only way to stop this man is to put him to death. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so that's where we're going to end in the text this morning, but I've got some homework for you. I would love it if you would take time this week to think more deeply about a couple of questions. Okay? Calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, you and I refer to God as father all the time. Is that a claim on our behalf that we are equal with God? No. So what was it about what Jesus was saying here that made them so upset? And so I'd like you to think about that over the next week as we get ready to look at the second half of this chapter next week. Here's the two questions I'd like you to think about. Number one, why was Jesus' statement met with such a violent response? They're so angry about what he said that the only answer is to kill him. So number one, why was his response met with, or why was his statement met with such a violent response? Number two, why did they understand this as a statement of equality with God? Why was that their takeaway? If I can pray to God and call him Father today, why is no one accusing me of blasphemy? What was it about what he said and how he said it that made them so sure that he was making a statement of equality with God, and that was a thing that needed to be punished? So I encourage you to think about those two questions as we get ready to come back next week and tackle the rest of this chapter. Listen, if you are here this morning because you're looking for a house of mercy, if you are looking for a place to find healing, you've come to the right place. And it doesn't depend on your own ability to go get in the water. It doesn't depend on anyone else who loves you so much that they might go to bat for you, although there's a group of people here who love you very much and would do anything for you. It is dependent upon your Savior's love for you. If you find yourself in a situation utterly devoid of hope, there is always hope, and his name is Jesus. And if you need that hope this morning, won't you grab a hold of it? Do you want to be made well this morning? That's the question I hope you'll think about as we stand and we sing. Let's stand and sing together. If we can serve you in any way, please come forward and let us know.